text this morning from Ephesians chapter 6. We are closing in on the end of the book of Ephesians after a little over two years working our way through it systematically. We we did take some detours along the way, but uh, it's been for me at least a fruitful study. I hope so for you as well. Uh, We begin at uh, verse 18, and we're picking up in the middle of a sentence, so it starts off a little awkward. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, your word is your designated power for accomplishing so much in the lives of your people. It's by your word that the gospel goes forth in power and calls the sinner from death to life. It's by your word that the converted person is increased in strength and we confront our sin and our inward sickness and we slay it by the word and by your spirit. It's by your word that we are encouraged. It's by your word that we are corrected. It's by your word that we are instructed and trained in righteousness. Your word is amazing and it's powerful. It never comes back to you without having accomplished everything that you wanted it to do. And so it is to your word and to the God of the word that we look now. And we say, Master, speak. Thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. Well, um, last week I gave you an incoherent sermon on prayer uh, in which I attempted to make certain points. And because it was an incoherent sermon on prayer, I'm going to remake those points and, uh, and then move past them a little bit and build on them. The, the first point that I attempted to make is that God has a plan for us and for our eternal future. And a big part of that plan is that we are going to reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And the Bible tells us that in several places. For instance, in Revelation 22 and verse 5, it says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In Revelation 5 and verse 10, it says, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And in 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul says that we suffer or we endure with Christ. And if we do that, we will also reign with him. Now, in order to accomplish that, to bring us to the point where we're capable of doing that, God will one day put great power at our disposal. And we will be able to use that power more or less as we see fit. Jesus talks about us actually doing greater works than he did while he was here on earth in the body. That's John 14, 12. And Jesus gives specific examples of what that power could look like. He talks about moving mountains around and relocating mulberry trees into the the depths of the ocean. 
And we will do all those things, and we will do them with God's power, but we will be given the authority to use that power more or less as we see fit, in much the same way that we currently receive power from God in our bodies, and we use that divine power in our bodies to do what we want with our bodies. And you will recall, perhaps, I I quoted Calvin, where he says, Miserable men take it upon themselves to act without God when they cannot even speak unless God grants it. So everything you do that you think you're doing on your own, you're actually doing because God is empowering you moment by moment to do that. And so God gives you the ability to speak. But then you use that power and and you use it in a way that's more or less up to you because God has given you responsible reign over your body. And he lets you, now he'll hold you accountable for, he says very clearly in scripture, you will be held accountable for every word that you speak, but he lets you speak your own words, okay? Well, one day you will move mountains in the same way that you now move your tongue, all right? And, and we're obviously not ready for that job yet. I mean, you know, think about, think about the ability to pick up a mulberry tree and drop it where you want, and then you get mad at your wife and decide to drop it on her. So, that, you know, you can't be that kind of person. We can't hardly manage the power we've got in our bodies. We're constantly doing things with our tongues and our hands and our faces and other body parts that displease God. Okay? So he has to get us to the point where we can do that responsibly, where we can reign and wield that power responsibly. And so the training for that job doesn't begin after you die. The training for that job begins here and now. And discipleship, which is becoming more and more like Jesus is God's plan for forming your character so that you can be trusted and empowered to do what you want. Because once your character is sufficiently formed, what you'll want is what God thinks is good and wise too. And it'll please him. And he'll be tickled to death that he can can give you power and turn you loose and you get to choose how to use it. It'll, It'll delight his soul. But he's got to get you to the place where you can do that well and responsibly. A big part, therefore, of discipleship centers around prayer. Prayer is God's power-sharing agreement that he instituted, and the purpose of prayer is to train us to reign with him forever. Through prayer, we learn how to to wield the power of God in order to bring it to bear on the needs and the issues of this life, both for ourselves and for people around us. But because the power of prayer is so great, God had to put certain safety features into place. And the main safety feature that God has decreed is that we have to ask him directly to unleash his power and bring it to bear on what concerns us. And so prayer then is going to God and asking him to do something with the expectation that he will respond and he will do what we ask or give us what we need. So prayer, therefore, is asking and receiving. Now that ought to tell you something about the tremendous power of prayer. Because prayer is actually the mightiest force in the universe. 
that a created being can exercise. And that fact, in and of itself, is really all the incentive that you and I ought to need to learn how to pray. I mean, there are all these problems that need to be solved in our lives and in the lives of people we love, and we have no idea how to go about solving them. Or maybe we lack the ability to solve them. We don't, we don't have the money to solve them. We don't have the time to solve them. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the strength. Uh, or, or we realize that other people and, and their desires and their attitudes and their actions would have to change in order for something good to be accomplished. But the other people aren't interested in making those changes. And you say, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, God has ordained that you deal with that through prayer. The key to solving or resolving all of those kinds of issues is prayer. Now, once again, that ought to inform how we live. We often have great confidence in our ability to go to another person and take our tongue and straighten them out. And we're actually not nearly as good at it as we think, but we keep at it, you know, we keep doing it, and, and, and we end up damaging or wrecking our relationships when we do that. And, we, and, and, and why, why is that a problem? Well, because we're placing all of our confidence in our ability to get someone to straighten up. You don't have that kind of power. God does. And so the best thing you can do for somebody that's doing something stupid or is about to do something stupid or wrong or they've got a problem or an issue that just isn't getting resolved is not to go and talk to them. It's to go to God and talk to Him about them. Now, because God has instituted prayer in order to train us, that means that our praying has to count for something. It has to matter. And also, as a corollary then, our lack of prayer has to count. It has to matter. And so God has set things up in such a way that there are good things that will happen when we pray that would not have happened had we not prayed. And conversely, there are bad things that won't happen because of our prayers that would have happened if we hadn't prayed. And the proofs that this is true are scattered all throughout the scriptures, and they can be quite dramatic. Just by way of example, we have uh, in 2 Kings chapter 20, the story of, uh, of a Jewish king, a Hebrew king named King Hezekiah, who was a godly man. And he, has, uh, he, he gets sick. We're not told what the illness is, but he, but he gets sick, and he's really sick. And God sends the prophet Isaiah to him. And Isaiah comes to him and says, thus says the Lord. So this is not Isaiah's opinion. Isaiah is God's vehicle. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. So being the bearer of bad news, Isaiah doesn't stick around after that. He turns around and he leaves. And the king is just crushed. He's just undone. He turns, it says, the scripture says, he turns his face towards the wall and begins weeping bitterly. And he pours out his heart to God in prayer. And he said, God, I love you and I've served you faithfully. You know this. Please be kind to me. 
Now Isaiah, while this is going on, is on his way out of the palace. And before he can get out the front door, God says, Isaiah, go back to King Hezekiah. I've got a, a, a new message for you to deliver to him. And so he goes back, and he, and he goes to Hezekiah, and he says, tell him that I will heal him in three days, and then I will give him 15 more years of life. And that's exactly what happened. And there are three other passages in Scripture where something similar happens, where the language of the Scriptures seems to indicate that God changes his mind or at least he seems to. Now, in Reformed theology, we are very concerned to safeguard two very important truths. One is the sovereignty of God. And in particular, the fact that this sovereign God, in the language of the Westminster Confession, freely ordains and decrees whatsoever comes to pass, and he did that all the way back at the very beginning. It says in the scripture that he knows the end from the beginning and that he is the one that brings all of these things about. He says in Isaiah, I, the Lord, bring light, I bring darkness, I bring prosperity, I bring disaster. I, the Lord, do all of these things. I'm in absolute control of everything that happens. The other truth that we are very concerned to guard is the unchangeableness of God. And this is very clearly reflected in Scripture. He says, for instance, in Malachi 3, I, O Israel, do not change. Therefore, you are not destroyed. In other words, what he's saying there is, my people, the security of your salvation rests precisely on the fact that God, who decreed before the foundation of the world that he would save you, will not wake up one day and go, oh, never mind. I changed my mind. God is a, a Norwegian from Wisconsin. He says, oh, I, I changed my mind. In Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, he says, I do not change my mind like a man. In James chapter 1, it says that there is no shadow of turning with Almighty God. So how do we square the sovereign, unchangeable nature of God with him saying one minute, king, you're going to die, and the next minute, in response to the prayers, oh, wait a minute, I've heard your prayers, and you're going to live. Well, loved ones, that is not an easy problem to solve. It can be done, but you must develop in your thinking a much more sophisticated understanding of God's sovereignty. An adolescent and simplistic view of God's sovereignty just will not do it will cause you to end up doing injustice to the Bible itself if you cling to an adolescent and a simplistic view of God's sovereignty. And more importantly, prayer will almost inevitably wither in your heart and in your mouth. It becomes almost psychologically impossible to pray. And I say that to you as one who spent years in that condition. I'm speaking from personal experience. I'm also speaking from the personal experience of people I know well and love who went through this. I can remember one time teaching a Sunday school class in Sturgis, and I said, and I, and I posited the question, does anything happen in response to our prayers that wouldn't have happened anyway? And one of my elders went, no. 
that same elder confessed to me many times that he struggled with prayer. Well, that's not a surprise. I did too. And so what happens then, because you're not going to probably give up on praying altogether, what happens then is your prayers, such as they are, change. And your prayers will either consist of trying to guess what God is about to do and then tell him to go ahead and do it. But if you're mistaken, that'll be okay and you won't be too upset if your guess is wrong. And so you get the, God, I I want this. I hope you're about to do this. But if it be thy will, it'll be done. But if it's not, that's okay too, kind of prayers. Or your prayers will consist of asking God to help you be okay and to accept graciously whatever happens and not be too upset about it. Now, neither of those two things is exactly wrong. We, we do want to have a general posture of submissiveness to God's will. But what God is ultimately after in instituting prayer is for you to exercise your own regenerated will in cooperation with his power to bring about good things that originate from within you, from within your heart. Trust in the Lord. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so in prayer, it seems like and it feels like God is making room for your will to be a part of the equation. And that's not an affront to his sovereignty, because it's a system that he himself put into place. Uh, There was a a, a Catholic philosopher, French guy named Blaise Pascal, uh, who lived in the 1700s and and maybe 1600s, 1600s, and uh, he said that God instituted prayer as a gift to give mankind what he calls the dignity of causality. That through prayer, we are given the privilege of making things happen that are of oftentimes eternal significance and that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't prayed. Incidentally, uh, C.S. Lewis, who was no Calvinist, does a marvelous job of exploring all of this in a little essay called Petitionary Prayer, A Problem Without an Answer. I encourage, it's very short, it takes about 15 minutes to read. It's on the internet for free. You can look it up. Petitionary Prayer by C.S. Lewis, A Problem without an answer. Now, the last thing that I spoke about last week was the fact that Scripture clearly teaches that habitual sin, which we call bad character, will weaken or even nullify your prayers. Persistent habitual sin will weaken and nullify your prayers. Psalm 66 and verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Conversely, good character or habitual obedience to Christ will strengthen your prayers and will make them more effective. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. So if you really want to see an answer to your prayers, then leave your sins. Cut them out. Cut them out of your life. Mortify the deeds of the flesh, as the Apostle Paul says. And men, in particular, be good and kind to your wives. If you want your prayers answered, make sure you're being good 
to your wife, that you're dwelling with her in an understanding and gracious way. Because Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 7, that not dwelling with her patiently and not showing her honor will hinder your prayers. That's one of the ways one of the ways that God has ordained to safeguard her in her vulnerability as a woman. In other words, God's saying, I'm, I'm looking out for her. And I'm gonna, if you're not good to her, I'm going to put you in a position where the only way a problem can be solved is with prayer, and then I'm not going to answer your prayers until you're good to her. Now, there are other factors to consider, of course, but the general rule is the more holy you are, the more powerful and effective your prayers will be. Now, let's just briefly turn to the text for today. And and we're in a position to see just how powerful prayer is by looking at how Paul tells us to use it. He says, first of all, that we are to pray at all times. Pray at all times. There's four alls here. Pray at all times. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says something very similar. He says, pray without ceasing. Now, I think that Paul is being quite literal here. He's He's not saying, well, you know, pray a lot. No, he's saying pray all the time. Uh, He's telling us to develop the habit of consistent interaction with God throughout the day. And you might say, well, I could never do that. I'd never be able to get anything else done. That's actually not true. What you'll actually learn and what the the saints of the past have learned, and, and, and the one who says this very clearly is a guy named Frank Laubach, who was a missionary to the Philippines in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, he said, you know, I I started trying to turn my mind to God just once a minute and to develop that habit. And God blessed me as I developed that habit. It was hard at first, and I I failed a lot. But over time, I gradually began to increase. And even the smallest increases in my, my time interacting with God during the day wrought these amazing benefits. And he says, I, I, I go to work, and, I, and you would think that it would make it harder for me to work, but it's easier. I, I need something, and I turn around, and there it is. I don't have to look for it. I, I'm trying to come up with an idea or something to write down, and, and I'm struggling, and then all of a sudden, God just gives it to me. And he says, I've been far more productive since I began to try and pray without ceasing. The other thing is to think about is that... Um, uh, that there, you're already doing things without ceasing, that, like, that are constantly, that, that are not work. They're not related to your daily activities. Like, like what, you might ask? What am I doing without ceasing sometimes? Well, worrying, right? Can you just worry intermittently? I'm, I'm going to worry for like five minutes here and then I'm done, right? Is that, is that how your life works? Back in August... I had a, I didn't talk a lot about it. I talked a little bit about it, but I, I had a cancer scare. Um, my liver was sore. I go, I get an ultrasound. There's something in there, and, and I get a bunch of blood tests done. And, and on a Friday at 5 o'clock, my doctor's uh, scheduler calls me and says, the doctor needs to talk to you now. And he made, made an appointment for Monday, one of those telehealth appointments, for Monday at 5 o'clock. And I was like, oh, something on my liver. He's got my blood work. He, he can see that there's something on my liver. That can't be good that he wants to talk to me this quickly. 
I want to tell you, loved ones, that weekend was really interesting. <laughs> it was really hard because I'm sitting here thinking, because one of the, th I was a hospice chaplain. I've seen a lot of liver cancer. And one of the things I know about, about liver cancer is there's no way to treat it, really, except a transplant. And they won't do a transplant if the cancer is spread anywhere else. But the nature of liver cancer is such is that you almost never find it before it spreads somewhere else. So it's basically kind of a death sentence, you know? It really is. I, I, I'm not that afraid to die, but I was afraid to leave my wife with all the undone projects around the house and trying to figure out what to do with all my stuff. And, and uh, it turns out she was a little worried about that too. And, um, and, and so I had a really tough weekend, worrying constantly. But I had to do all the things that I have to do, especially come in here and preach on a Sunday morning. And I went back and listened to the sermon not too long ago, and it didn't sound like I was terrified. It sounded like a normal sermon. So I was able to worry like a maniac and still accomplish what I needed to do. You can do that too. You can do that too. If you're in the grip, for instance, of strong sinful appetites, there will be a ceaseless kind of activity as you're on the prowl to find ways to gratify those appetites. And so you're capable of functioning in daily life while doing something negative in a constant fashion. What that ought to tell you is you can do positive things in a constant fashion. You can pray without ceasing. And, and part of the reason you can do that is not just the natural ability to kind of alternate very rapidly between tasks, but, but because God also promises to help you by his spirit, which is within you. The Holy Spirit will pray through you, and the Holy Spirit will pray with you. So pray at all times. Secondly, you are to pray all kinds of prayers. Uh, you, there, are, there are other kinds of prayers besides asking for stuff. That's called supplication. That's what that means. Uh, there, there are many different forms of prayer, and each one has a specific purpose and a specific effect. Among these are prayers of adoration and praise. Do you ever just, do you ever just sit down and think about God and about your salvation and about where you are and just go, thank you? God, I, I can't believe that you saved me and that you're watching over me and guarding me and and that you've instituted this relationship with me, and I am tickled to death. I love you, God. I adore you. I am amazed by your goodness and your love and your power. God, thank you for just being you. Thank you for just doing the things that you do that nobody else could do but you. So you should, you should spend some time adoring, and what you'll find is that that makes you happy. That there's great pleasure in telling God how wonderful he is. And so you should pray these prayers of adoration. You should pray prayers of confession of sin. You should repent in prayer. You should pray prayers of thanksgiving for what God has done. You should pray prayers of intercession for other people. You should pray prayers that have to do with spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Uh, and, and there are other kinds of prayer. There are many other kinds of prayer. You should learn about them, and you should learn how to use them. So pray at all times with all kinds of prayer. Thirdly, we are to pray with all perseverance, all perseverance. Jesus was very clear on this issue, wasn't he? 
He once told a parable about a widow and an unjust judge who would not give her justice until she basically nagged him into submission. And he said, you know, I don't care about justice at all, but I'm sick of her. I'm going to give her what she wants just so she'll shut up and go away. And, and Jesus says, God is much better than an unjust judge. He is. But Jesus says, the scripture says that Jesus told this parable, quote, that we should always pray and never give up. That's Luke 18.1. We should always pray and never give up. Well, a lot of us quit praying after we prayed two or three times about something. And we just kind of throw up our hands and say, well, God's never going to do that. It's just not going to happen, so I give up. You're doing exactly what Jesus told you not to do, right? You, sh you should study that parable. Basically, that parable is an invitation to nag God until he gives you what you want. Persistence, loved ones, is the key to prevailing prayer. To just be relentless in bringing to God what you want. And, and there are times where God will say no, right? But you should pray until the no is so clear that you can't, that you can't mistake it. I, I mean, I, I prayed like when Adam was, was sick and the up and the down and everything else. I was praying like crazy for him. And I said, I am not going to stop until there's no way that this prayer that I'm praying can be answered. And even when he died, I was like, Lord, I'm literally sitting there next to him. Lord, woken up dead people before. That'd be a handy trick now, Lord. Would you consider that, Father, please? Would you do a miracle? Would you impress everybody with your goodness and your power? Please, God, wake him up. Well, God said no. And that's okay. It's a tough pill to swallow. But persistence, loved ones, is very often the key to prevailing prayer. Fourthly, we should pray for all the saints. Let's pray for all the saints, says Paul. So many of God's people are subject to difficulties, trials, tribulations, and persecutions. So many people are tired and they're weary. So many people need wisdom and knowledge. So many people are subject to relentless persecution, relentless temptation, and they need your prayers. They need you. There's an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but you can go right now to their website and you will find many different ways to pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world. You can go and get a 100-page global prayer guide for free that will help you pray for the needs of your brothers and sisters in other places where life is much, much harder than it is here. You can go to another website that they're linked to there. It's called icommittopray.com. Now, that's a, that's a catchy website. You better not just click that and, and go, oh, well, that's not a big deal. icommittopray.com. And you can, you can read prayer requests from all over the world, and you can write out your own prayers for them so that they can read them too. You, you can be partnered with a, a, what they call a frontline worker, a, a pastor, a missionary, an evangelist. 
and, and pray for them for one year. You will know them by name. You will know their situation. I don't know how much interaction you get to have with them, but you will be able to pray for them. And they ask you to commit to that for a period of one year. There, there's a, uh, all this is free. I mean, they'll ask for a donation, but it's all free. Spend some time with those people. There's a, there's a magazine that you can get, once again, for free, a subscription. That's uh, the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. And every few months, they'll send you this magazine, and there'll be all these stories in there about our brothers and sisters from all over the world and, and what God is doing and what God is not yet doing but will do in response to our prayers. And you can hear their stories. And when that happens, loved ones, it will cause you to repent for your weak heart and your self-absorption. You will find out that it's not a crisis when you can't have things exactly like you like them at church. A crisis is when you can't gather for church because the authorities are on to you and it's not safe. And if you met together, everyone would be arrested and maybe executed. I'm just going to close with this challenge. Last, last week, um, I'm, I'm calling these people that came and talked to us last week our South Asian friends because this is going out uh, on the internet and the government of that nation where they serve is actively spying on them and is looking for evidence that they can use to either arrest them or throw them out of the country. And they've already had several brushes with that, and they've had other friends who were asked to leave, or not asked, they were thrown out, because it was social media and whatever caused the authorities to go, ah, here's evidence that you're doing what we think you're doing, and we don't like it, so go away now. All right? So, so I'm going to call them our South Asian friends. I hope everybody knows who I'm talking about. And, and, uh, and, and I just want to issue you a challenge. Our, brothers and si our brother and sister are longing for fruit. They're longing for it. In part, because their labor is very hard and, and their situation is often very difficult. And it would just encourage them to know that God is using them. Now, they've received some encouragement. If you were able to attend, if you weren't able to attend the potluck afterwards, you missed out, I gotta tell you. Um, the, the wife told a story. She's uh, a native of that country, and it's an Islamic country. And she had an aunt, which she called her evil aunt. And her evil aunt literally used to torment her for being a Christian. She'd go to her house for some kind of celebration, and she'd spend the whole time just speaking nasty things to her. And, and, uh, and then they find out that the evil aunt, who they had just visited and she'd been nasty, um, had throat cancer, and it was very late, stage four throat cancer, and that she was going to die. And so the relatives said, come see your evil aunt. And the husband's like, I'm not sure I want you to do that. She's, she's so bad. And it really hurts your heart when you're around her. But she said, I'm going to go. And, and when she got to her, she's in bed, and she's very close to death. And she could hardly talk because her throat is eaten up with cancer. And, she's, and she is able to communicate. She said, I had a dream. And a man came to me, and he began pulling snakes and scorpions out of my mouth. And they were just on and on and on. And, and, and when he had done that, then he had a book. But the book was locked, and I couldn't open it. 
And the, the wife said, that man was Jesus. And that book is the book of life. And you can't go to heaven unless your name is in that book. Do you want your name in that book? She said, yes. And less than, I think it was maybe 24 hours later, she was dead. So God is at work, and that is encouraging, but it'd be nice to have some Christians that hang around a little bit longer after they're converted, right? So, so I'm going to issue you a challenge. I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you, you, you just do this, I don't, I don't need to know. I'm going to ask you to pray daily for them and to pray specifically for five new converts in a period of one year. That's not too much. That's not too hard for God to do. Five new converts. He's got to have people there. He's got to have people there. So, so I'm going to ask you to do that and, and pray for five new converts and, and do it daily and do it fervently and do it intensely and then just see what God does. And if God, if God answers that prayer, it, first of all, it will encourage them mightily, right? They'll have five new people to fellowship with. But it'll also encourage you. It'll encourage you to pray because you will see, I asked and I received. I was persistent and diligent, like Jesus said, and God relented. And in that process, you will find that what happens between the asking and the receiving, especially if there's a delay, is that God is working on your character. And he's bringing you to a place where your insides are more ordered and more godly and more uh, resembling Christ through that process of pursuing him in prayer. And that'll just be good for everybody. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of prayer. Thank you that you have instituted this amazing privilege, not only to just interact with you, but even to exert influence in the world by asking you to move. And thank you that you've set it up this way. Thank you that you're training us to reign one day and to, to, to be beings of great dignity and power and goodness who will co-reign with you and co-labor with you forever and ever. Amen.